With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Around the Coin. Today's guest is Charles Rosenblatt. He is the president of PayQuicker. Previously, he spent time as the chief strategy officer at Payoneer and many other payment companies before that. We talked about what life is like as a chief strategy officer for a large payments company, what he's doing day to day, how he's thinking about the landscape, the competitive landscape, the, the market flow, the changes really diving deep into what it takes and what it's like to be in payments as chief strategy officer, which I find incredibly interesting. They have raised, they being pay quicker, about $5 million in seed funding. We discussed the future of payments in the traditional landscape, what payment orchestration is, how it works, both on payments coming into companies and coming out of companies, and why and how things are changing in this area. Lastly, we ended with crypto. We talked about when and how crypto will undercut the existing payment rails, how it'll happen, and what are the triggers or signals that people should look for when crypto comes into play. So hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Charles Rosenblatt. Charles, man, I'm excited to chat with you. Welcome to Around the Coin Podcast. I was looking through your background. You spent some time at Payoneer. You've advised a few payment companies. It looks like you've spent a lot of time in payments. To kind of kick off the conversation, would love to learn from you what your experience has been like, you know, just kind of a brief overview of your background. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's been, been interesting. I guess when you've been in payments for such a long time and Mike, it's, it's a pleasure speaking to you. I enjoy the, the podcasts that you do. So it's a pleasure to actually be on with you. You know, I've been in payments for now 20 plus years. I started in the credit card space with Capital One and Washington Mutual and Chase, and then joined this new fintech space over the last, uh, 10 years, you know, working with HyperWallet pre the sale and helping with the sale to PayPal. Payoneer, as you had mentioned, with the going public via SPAC over the last couple of years and, you know, worked with a bunch of small fintechs during time as advisors. You know, it's it, it's amazing the change that's going on. If you're, if you're not staying up to speed every 10 minutes on something different, listening to podcasts like yours, reading articles on websites, things will change before you know it. And it's amazing all the innovation that's going on out in the space. Yeah. And when you when you think of what you spend your time paying attention to, do you spend it on specifically within payments or crypto or kind of how do you how do you regiment your information diet? Yeah, it's it's interesting. My probably lead with payments 
right? And payouts, even more specifically, given the markets I've been in the last few years. I still do look at what the traditional players are doing, because even though you have the JP Morgan Chases and the Barclays and the Capital Ones, who are not as quick as the you know, fintechs in the space, they still are making you know, reasonably good advances in different areas, especially in the more traditional payments areas. As far as crypto, you know, I keep my ear to the ground. I probably do a little less reading in that space, but understanding is, as we need to do about money movement around the globe. And when you start looking at crypto as a way to move money in a faster, quicker way, that is something that I do keep top of mind and try to you know, read as much as I can from that perspective and talk to folks in the industry. Mm. And what was your time like? Maybe more specifically, what are the responsibilities of a chief strategy officer at Payoneer? Right. So my 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 duties there varied, right? So I, I ran the product organization there, so helped build the new products around the globe. I helped build our corporate strategy, which helped lead to our SPAC transaction that we did in June of last year. I led our M&A efforts, which before I left, there was no M&A that occurred. There was one M&A transaction before I got there. And, and we, we, we were very cautious and wanted to make sure we had the right sort of infrastructure in place before we made another. And I'm sure they're going to do great things from that perspective. And then building the overall corporate strategy about where we're headed, where we want to spend our time, where we want to allocate resources and things along those lines. You know, from my perspective, it was sort of the culmination of running a lot of businesses like I did at Capital One and JP Morgan Chase and Washington Mutual, running part of the business that I did at HyperWallet before that, which is clearly another player in the payout space. The chief strategy officer sort of is one who gets to sort of look at and encompass and sort of play different roles. There was, you know, no chief revenue officer for a period of time while I was there before they brought in a really good one in Robert Clarkson. I pseudo played that role within the organization. So I kind of am a jack of all trades for good or for bad. I guess when you get old enough and have done enough things, you wind up playing a lot of uh, different roles. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I have a lot of faith and belief in, in Payoneer going forward as well. So if you were to join, hypothetically, a new large, you're to join existing large payment company, and you have a very similar responsibility as a chief strategy officer, I find chief strategy officer an interesting position because it is such a jack of all trades and it's it's really such a you know it's the navigator to the ship right it's like someone that helps steer and make the determination about where to go you mentioned M&A you mentioned product you mentioned the IPO through the SPAC how did you say we'll take the strategy of the company how did you sort of go about this did you kind of prepare some report? I mean, tactically, what are you yeah. doing to do that? So it's interesting, Mike, I, I use the phrase a lot, stratocution, right? And that's my sort of belief. I am, McKinsey and Bain are amazing at what they do as companies. But a lot of the time they present decks that wind up, you know, sitting on shelves in executive mm -hmm. offices. And because those companies don't have the ability to execute on the strategy that those guys are recommending. My belief is understanding a landscape, meeting with all the leaders around the company, understanding the operational blood and guts of a company, and then creating a strategy based on ability to execute and able to do that. And so that was a big piece of my time at Payoneer was actually learning, understanding the great leaders that they had at that company, and also the ability to you know, execute on things. 
and building a logical strategy, both internally and externally on what they're doing. And as I moved to pay quicker, took that same sort of assessment overall, needing to understand exactly what we can do and what we can't do and what resources we have as a company, and then creating an execution strategy based on that. I think strategy as a, you know, a lot of chief strategy officers may go in and create the best vision that they've ever seen for the next five to 10 years. But if the company has no chance of hitting that vision, then all you do is pay someone a lot of money to not actually help push you forward. Yeah. So, so like if you bring it almost down even a level from abstraction from that and say, what makes a great, what's the difference between a, a good or even average chief strategy officer and a great one? Is it the detail of the report that they're providing or like, how, how would you think about the evolution or development of a chief strategy position? I, I think someone who plays in the chief strategy position should be able to take the jobs of the chief revenue officer, the chief operations officer, the chief product officer, maybe even the CFO from, a, you know, probably not the details, but the general understanding of the business. They need to be able to understand how to play those roles and how their strategy will affect those roles. If you have someone who only knows something from a very conceptual basis, they're going to come in with conceptual answers, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the fact is that, you know, from my history, I played those roles at different companies before. And I felt like at Payoneer, we had great people who were either in those roles or, or getting hired into those roles. And we were able to look at the strategy, the story that we shared with Wall Street during the SPAC and the, the post-SPAC period. And we were able to tell a story and drive the company to something that was, again, as I said, executable, right? Not just sort of the up and to the right story that you may do in a VC presentation that, you know, hopes you're going to get there, but isn't really, in a lot of cases, based in reality. Mm. And how much unknown goes into it? I mean, a whole idea of strategy is like similar to wartime strategy. There's just, it's really being able to process and make sense of a limited amount of imperfect information and then take the, the correct course of action. And I, I'm personally fascinated by, you know, kind of old wartime generals and stories. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's it, obviously it's a different, it's a different battleground entirely, right? Where no one's hurting each other physically, but there is, healthy competition between companies, especially large companies. And I wonder like, what, what are, what's it look like in the war room? Like you're, you're pulling in, you know, what, yeah. what are the things that, yeah, you, you really want to have access to as a chief strategy officer? So uh, essentially, you know, it's one really important to be surrounded by people who can think strategically as well. Right. And that's not necessarily members of your strategy group, but it's the business line leaders in different areas. And I feel like the best way to understand strategy is about, as you said, in the wartime, do I attack to the left? Do I attack mm. to the right? Do I attack at night? Do I attack during the day? Do I attack through the air? Do I attack through the water? Well, in business, you only have a set amount of resources. There's not unlimited resources, whether it's people or dollars. And you need to understand if you're going to attack one business, you know, you're not going to attack another. What are the opportunity costs for one versus the other, both in the short term and the long term, both in the public messaging versus the private messaging? How are you allocating those resources? And so in order to make those decisions and provide that guidance, 
you really need the best understanding from your leaders within each of those areas to say, if I gave you $10 million to put towards your business, what kind of return on investment could I get? What's the timeline on the return of investment that I could get? What would you do with that $10 million? Almost as if they're all small little companies within your company. And you get that feedback. And as a chief strategy officer and as an executive in the company, what you need to then do is you weigh all of those and figure out what's the best course of action, not only for revenue, which may be your goal, which by the way, take a step back. You could have multiple targets as a company. You could want revenue. You could want EBITDA. You could want client growth, right? You could want diversification of geography, which was something that was is very big at Payoneer and they've, they've taken steps forward, right? So you have to figure out what your target you want is, right? You may not, you, you may care in a war like you talked about, I want to win the war without losing any soldiers. Well, if that's your goal, you're going to take a very different attack of I want to win the door, war in the next two days. And if people die in along the way, that's fine as long as I win in two days. It's, again, the same thing in business. Thank God that people aren't dying, nor should they in war, but that's a whole separate you know, conversation. But it's about how do you want to meet your strategic goals, which is then the overlying strategy that we spoke about a minute ago, and how do I allocate my resources in the best possible way in order to meet those goals in the timeline that we want to hit? I think mm. that's the fun of it, right? I mean, when push comes to shove, being a chief strategy officer or being a president of the company now, it is a lot of fun because you're getting to make those tough decisions. As long as you have really good people working with you side by side, under you, over you, whatever they happen to be, to be able to get the right information. Because the key in this, you kind of talked about information here from it, is having the right information and inputs, right? Yeah. How do you know when someone's being honest with you? How do you know when someone is full of it? How do you know when that they tell you that 10 million is going to be worth 50 million? Mm. What's the likelihood? Uh, you know, I, I, I tell a story, take two seconds, but mm -hmm. when I was at Capital One way back when, you know, we used to go through IT prioritizations and we used to have a cutoff at some cases that were like 576% ROI and anything below it, we weren't moving forward. And I used to joke with my boss at the time, like, can I write a check for a hundred grand and pick up this 458% ROI project and fund it myself. And, you know, the, the art and science to that was understanding who was inflating their numbers, who wasn't inflating their numbers, what was the likelihood of it to occur versus the optimistic side of it to occur. Because the fact is, even in that case, we didn't have enough resources to work on projects that in theory, and I'd say, quote unquote, had 476% return. And it's all about choices. And what I, what I push very much as a chief strategy officer, I push very much at Payoneer, I push at PayQuicker as well, is making conscious decisions, mm. right? A lot of business breaks apart because people aren't making conscious decisions and don't understand the outcomes or the unintended outcomes of those decisions. And I think as long as you're making conscious decisions, no matter what company you're at, you're going to be in significantly better shape as a leadership team and as a company with its value. As opposed to just doing what you have been doing, keep pushing, kind of negating the whole idea. Like I think of <clears throat> maybe a quintessential company that 
has, I almost think of them as being famous for not making any decision to change being blockbuster, right? Like the internet's coming, Netflix is coming, content is moving to you know, digital formats, yet blockbuster is like, hey, we got a store, come on in, rent the DVDs. It's like, it works. And, you know, maybe they moved to, obviously they, they tried to at some point, but it was too little too late. And I would imagine that just got to be a function of the lack of sophistication from the executive team. Yeah, and I can't. I you know I don't want to bemoan the blockbuster executive team. As it's I okay. It's okay. But, <laughs> but but you know the bottom line is if they said, hey, look, our numbers are 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 growing in certain areas, and this is how we're growing. They're looking blindly at the fact yeah. that we're growing, right? And you know just because you're growing at one percent, if the market's growing at forty percent, you're losing, right? Yeah. And and that's where people need. You can't have blinders about what's going on around you. You know, if you had an investment portfolio and the stock market was up 40% for the year and your portfolio manager told you you were up 3%, you'd probably fire him or her, mm, right? Yeah. But if you look generally and said, well, the interest rate on the savings account is 1% and I'm making 3%, so that's good, right? It's a different way of thinking. And so understanding competition, understanding where the market's going, making sure you're on top of the market. Both from an M&A perspective, people you want to add on and people who are doing great things. I mean, if you look at the banks today, and Jamie Dimon's come out with a lot of comments that J.P. Morgan has made recently about fintechs and advantages and disadvantages. But what happened realistically, and I'm going to date myself a little, was in when 09, 10, 11, 12, when that sort of economy went down the last time, what all of these large banks did was went and fired all of their innovation people. Right. They said, we need to invest in our core business. We need to be able to issue credit cards or open bank accounts or whatever it is. And all those innovation people left and created all these fintech startups that now these companies are going back and buying <laughs> for 80 times the cost of what it would have done to just build it themselves if they had held those exact same people at their company. Yeah. Right? And I think there's a fear of repeating itself in some ways, especially as the economy may or may not hit a recession coming up, you know, these companies who were laying off 10%, 20%, I just saw Klarna did another round of layoffs today. You know, you have all these people who are laying off really smart people who are going to go found their own new fintechs in some way, shape or form. And those companies are going to come back and now buy them at 50 times the cost of if they just held those employees and innovated internally. So, I mean, I think that happened 10 years ago. I think that's going to happen again. Well, in some way, I almost think of it as maybe those fintechs just could not have been started internally in those companies. Like many of the projects within Google, I mean, Google specifically, you know, is kind of famous for allocating one day of employee time to do whatever you want, you know, go explore and brainstorm yep. and build. And then people go and they leave Google and Google will say, great, go and, you know, keep us updated on what you do. Because I think there's a, a recognition, a healthy recognition within that company, Google, saying we can't create the culture of this new product, like to wrap it into our existing sales funnel and our existing go-to-market strategy. Like it, it just doesn't have that same pop that a new brand and new founder and new excitement and new capital would have. And so I think it's almost like, it's like offshoots, you know, you, you kind of need fresh brands and fresh perspectives outside of the umbrella. Like I, you know, could Capital One realistically have started you know, all the fintechs that came out of it, probably, I'm guessing probably not. Maybe some of them, but probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We we had something called the Invention Factory, which was the first place I worked at at Capital One, which had its own building, 
It was in its own area. It was fully staffed from call center to operations to marketing, et cetera. And we came up with some pretty cool new products. But you're right. They were within the scope of what the business was today, right? I mean, they were credit card products, right? They weren't brand new, you know, lending things mm-hmm. that had nothing to do with credit cards or things along those lines. So I think you're right inherently, but I think the question gets to is there's got to be a better way for corporate America to harness that, right? And I'm not sure I know the answer, but to go and pay multiple billions of dollars a couple of years later from the same people that were sitting in your innovation group a few years earlier, there's got to be a better way for JP Morgan to be able to say, hey, I'm going to let these 15 employees go. Let's strike a deal. Let's cut them a check for XYZ as startup capital. And we're going to take 5% of their new startup with a right to purchase it down the road. Yeah. There's got to be some innovative thinking along those lines from these larger companies, or it's going to repeat itself, which again, as someone who's at a, you know, at a smaller company today and have been in a smaller company, whether it's a hyper wallet or even a pioneer from that sense, have gotten to take advantage of that, right? There's got to be a smarter path for these larger companies to invest in people. Because really that's when push comes to shove, when VCs start and they're raising, you know, seed rounds of capital, it's probably 50% the idea, but it's 50% the inventor, right? And it may even be in some cases, 95% the inventor and 5% the idea. Yeah. And you would think that these large companies would figure out that when really good talent is leaving, and leaving to go to the fintech or the startup space to start something new as a way to get involved in that much earlier than they do today to save them a lot of money down the road. Yeah, I heard one time the interview, it was an interview with the CEO of Stripe, Patrick Collison. Somebody asked him, why is there not more innovation and successful products coming out of existing banks and fintech companies? And he gave like, why are they, why does Chase's website to this day still clunky and ugly? Like, are they not, what is it? And he said something along the lines of, they just can't attract the kinds of people who care enough to build great products. And I think there's a cultural element, like you could have all the money in the world and you could pull in one or two people, but ultimately you're still kind of pushing a rock uphill constantly. Whereas it's like... The, so I think companies who try to create this in-house culture of innovation, if it's not rooted in the DNA of the company, then it's difficult to really pour people in. And I, I think Google was kind of one of those companies that seems to have that as like the core foundation so they can launch all these different products and services that, that work. But to your point, I think this is the middle ground, which is companies that are large take some budget off the balance sheet, hire some VCs or, or take them within the company and say, we're just going to put this capital to work investing in outside funds. Like Fidelity does that. I mean, they're they're kind of one of the larger VCs out there, funds out there investing in, in companies. And at least that way they get access to it. They can see what's going on. They get access to like the pitch decks, the deals. It's an intelligence arm. Yeah, well, and that's what, that's what, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, Mike. Uh-huh. Yeah, when when I was at Capital One, we had a VC firm that was part of Capital One called North Hill Ventures, led by some really, really smart VC guys. And really what it was, was the ability for us to start seeing deal flow at Capital One in those startups back in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 that no one else did. In fact, my first job at Capital One was actually the interface with the VC, where I would actually look at the VC deal flow that was coming in 
and evaluate it for Capital One corporate deals while the VC was evaluating it for a venture capital deal, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's a really smart way that some of these companies have gone to. In fact, there are some companies out there, and I'm going to leave the one I'm thinking of unnamed, who have started VC funds to look at other stuff, which is actually better than their core products that they are today. And that's what they're using their private equity or VC money to do is invest in other people because they feel like better at spotting talent than actually building something themselves. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to another story. So when I was at a company called D.E. Shaw, which is a large hedge fund in New York, I think they're third or fourth largest hedge fund in the world today. And they started Juno. So I don't know if you probably dating myself. Juno was like the first free internet service when they used to have disks around and it was free. And there was this gentleman who was there who left there in 1995 who had this idea. And I, I, I hear this story anecdotally, to be fair. And he went up to David Shaw, who is a very, very wealthy man, one of the most brilliant people around, and said, I have this idea to start this online book bookstore. You want to build it within our company? And the, in theory, the response was, what do you mean, just books? And he said, I'll invest in you because I trust you, but we're not going to do it in the company. And of course, Jeff Bezos at that point got in the car and went across the country and started Amazon. Hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't think Amazon, even as innovative as D.E. Shaw was, as innovative as it was starting the first internet company with Juno, I'm not sure Amazon would have become Amazon if, if Jeff hadn't gone across the country, taken some really good people from D.E. Shaw with them. And gone and started Amazon and built it to what it was. So I, I think even the most innovative companies somehow may need a release from that corporate structure, but it doesn't mean that corporate structure can't be financing behind it, mm. right? So they, they get their share. And again, I don't know the exact story, but my understanding is David put money in that and probably has done quite well from his, his, his early yeah. pre-state in Amazon, right? Yeah. But I think that's something that people need to look at and if you're not always looking at new deal flow, right? And no city has city ventures and JP Morgan's JP. Like if you're not looking and seeing deal flow, you're never going to be able to be as cutting edge and innovative as, as you want to be. Mm. And that's exciting for us. You know, we just launched a brand new platform ourselves, which I'm happy to talk about later. But as part of it, we're getting people coming to us saying, hey, we'd like to be part of that platform. Well, that's great for me because that then opens up the door to investors, partners, no matter what they're going to be, right, down the road who wouldn't have been involved in, the, in, in any other fashion. Yeah. So let me ask you about your, your current endeavor in this way. So you're now with PayQuicker, which you joined, didn't start operating no. as a president. What was it in the market? What sort of market trends coming from almost a, a chief strategy perspective? What market trend did you see that got you excited enough about this business to join it? Yeah. So, I mean, the business has, has two pieces to it, one of which I was involved in many, many years ago, which is global payouts in a couple of industries, including the direct selling space, which is considered the multi-level marketing space, where you know, I think it's sometimes people consider it high risk or frowned upon because there's the one or two cases of people who have acted badly in that space. But in general, the concept is the same. They were the first set of gig workers that were ever out there. <laughs> and they are still the gig workers today, right? The person, the woman who sells Tupperware is a gig worker, right? Not the same way you think of an Uber driver. But in the same sense, what I looked at was the technology 
that was built behind it. And the technology that PayQuicker had was world-class. And it was world-class serving a sector of folks who candidly probably didn't need world-class technology. They could, they could probably use really good technology, but didn't need the world-class technology. And being able to level, take those bones and look at opportunities in the market, which I'm able to do using my strategy lens, right? What we, what we figured out was there's no sort of, there's payment orchestration. And, and if you're not familiar with that term, payment orchestration really is the idea of creating a lowest cost routing among a bunch of players who are bidding for your business. Hmm. It's a very common business in the pay-in space. And I, I talk about pay-ins, which is, you know, needing to buy things. So if I'm Amazon, I use a payment orchestration service so I can run certain transactions through one processor and another transaction through another processor. And, and but, sorry to interrupt you, pay yeah. in, the idea of pay-in is money coming into a company? Correct. So mm-hmm. you go and buy one of these lovely speakers from Amazon. You give a credit card. They have multiple processors of which they choose from to run that transaction. And that is what you call a payment orchestration platform for pay-ins, mm-hmm. right? So they choose the cheapest routing. They che- choose the best, sir, the quickest reply. They can do it on a number of variables, but they use multiple partners. So Amazon, for example, likely does not use one company to take all their pay-ins across the globe. They use multiple of them, and they use a payment orchestration layer in order to essentially decide which on every single transaction, which one's it going to go through. Hmm. Okay. On the payout side of the house, which is paying gig workers, marketplaces, 1099 workers, insurance payments, clinical trial payments, gaming payments for actually the creator economy is a great example. Paying out to the creator economy from a, a platform like a, a Substack or someone along those lines, right? They basically have to just go with whoever they sign, right? And there are multiple players, but there aren't a lot of players who can do U.S. and global. There aren't a lot of players that can pay to someone's card, someone's bank account, someone's e-wallet, crypto, et cetera. And what the bones of the PayQuicker technology allowed was actually creating this payment orchestration layer for payouts. So we have over 10 banks. We have over 200 countries, over 40 currencies. So if you need to pay out someone, Mike, you would basically take our API and be connected to all of them through one API, like a common application for college, right? So if you apply through a common application, you can fill out one application and and apply to 15 schools at one time. Well, when you fill out our application, become a client, we hook you up with 15 of the top providers who do payments all around the globe. And they actually proactively bid for your business on a market-to-market basis. So if you're paying someone in the U.S., you'll have 15 people bidding for the lowest price for you to be able to pay out or to do it the quickest or to do it, you know, in multiple other ways based on your funding currency. And then let's say you want to pay to Vietnam. We have a different group of folks or maybe some of the same who will bid for that. And so on a market-to-market basis, on a transaction-to-transaction basis, we have a technical infrastructure, basically, that allows you to route in the cheapest way. So we've basically created a wholesale model that businesses can get to do payouts all around the world, whether you're a marketplace, a gig economy, et cetera. That's something that's not out there today. It's never been established. 
And based on you know my view of the market, I thought it was something that was necessary. It's also completely white labeled. So if you're an Uber or you're a Meta or you are a you know, Substack or whoever you happen to be, it's completely done within your ecosystem. All you're doing is pulling APIs and doing it that way. And what's funny is that's the technology that was built, kind of like AWS was tested at Amazon and then it was launched to the world. We tested this technology in the DSO space, have over 300 DSO clients. What, we what's pay DSO? Out the direct selling, sorry, the multi-level okay. marketing space. We pay out over billions of dollars with millions of customers. And now we're taking this technology, have turned it a little and offering it out to everyone. And that that's formed from years of, of reading as you <laughs> talked yeah, about. Yeah, totally. Earlier. So why do you think that this technology, if you tell, almost take a step back from the individual company, so why is it that today this is so, as relevant as it is? Is there, I imagine that the company started building this years ago. But was there some infrastructural layer that made this possible today? Where, it, As you explain it, it feels kind of obvious. It's like you want an efficiently routed payment system for money coming in and money coming out. We all live in different countries with different payment options. It, was it some kind of just no one went after it or? Yeah, I, I think some of it is mindset, right? So hmm. let me give you an example. A lot of our partners who are great Usually go sign people up. They think of themselves as how, what's the transaction volume you're going to send? What minimums are you going to pay me? If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo, etc. And no one really has said to them, no, I want you to sort of compete for the business, right? I want to create an open market. Usually a provider, you know, XYZ company will go and they'll sign with one of our 10 partners and that's it. They'll sign with them and that's who they do business with. And I think what's happened and there are companies out there who have basically in other industries, like I'll use an Expedia as an example. Expedia has done an amazing job as does Booking.com and others, of saying, why in the world should you search for one hotel? Don't go to Hilton's website. 
Go to our website, tell us the criteria that you want, and we'll be able to do it. And I think that's, by the way, you asked about research. Most of the time I spend researching things, I look at other industries to see what I can port into this industry, right? I read as much about travel and hotels and, you know, sales of cosmetics and, you know, what Amazon's doing and others as I do about, you know, what other pen payment fintechs are doing. Because sometimes things like this are actually extractable. And so I think inherently this was sort of an idea based on what I had seen in the market, the desire for white labels, the desire and what's worked in other markets like in Expedia, and then looked at the technology that PayQuicker had underlying it and said, my God, we can do this with this technology. Because candidly, a lot of the companies in this space have 15-year-old technology that I joke is a bunch of rubber band balls all over each other, mm. right? And they can't, they couldn't sort of pivot. I, I hate to use the word pivot because the company didn't pivot, but but they couldn't pivot their technology from one industry to another or one application to another. And we've been fortunate enough between the leaders at our company and my relationships when you've been in finance for a long time, you know a lot of people. And my feeling is I've grown a immense network of people who trust me and I trust them. And they know that I can help their business because I've grown businesses at other places. And luckily, a lot of them are in leadership positions at some of the companies that were part of our network. Yeah. Right? And I think they believe in this model because inherently, if you think about it, I'm a retail channel for them. So... If I have Convera as a partner, as a great example, one of our long-term partners, I'm bringing them business they don't have to do directly overall. So I become a channel for them. It may be a little lower margin because we're doing it wholesale and we're passing the wholesale on to our clients, but I can become a channel for new business for them from a sales perspective. Meanwhile, my clients are getting best-in-class rates that they wouldn't get from Convera alone. Because I have volume of seven times their size because of all the people who have joined the platform. Got it. And so it sounds like a lot of the relationships with people, the people that you're referring to would be the both the customers, which is the businesses that want to send money out to their vendors typically or other yeah, yeah uh, vendors primarily. And then it would be the pay, the merchant payment processors for which... Typically, there had been an individual one-off relationship, but now you're saying it's kind of like, it's not an open marketplace, but it's a, like you say, wholesale. You have a bunch of different payment providers in different countries, and then they give quotes. And I'm happy to bring any of them. Mike, anyone who comes to me and says they want to be part of my network to provide payout rails, all I say to them is I'm not going to sign a contract with a minimum. Yeah. You put your rails out there. We'll connect to you. I can connect you in less than six weeks with, with, with what we've built. Yeah, right, yeah, through our APIs. And if you provide the best price, you're going to win a lot of business. And if you provide a crummy price, yeah, you're going to win no business. Got it. That's up to you. So I am, you know, I don't have any sort of anyone who wants to join. We were just presenting at Finnovate as we launched this product. And I had five or 10 different people say, hey, can we join the network? And I said, sure, you're welcome to join the network. Here's the deal. It's wholesale pricing. And we're going to provide this marketplace and you're going to win what you, you, you get to win what you kill. Yeah. Right? So where does this go? I mean, when I look at this from a high level, I'm like, all right, so we have, in, you know, probably decades ago, we have credit card companies. They want to build a network. They pay people a percentage to go and sell the credit card terminal, sign up the merchant, sign up the yep. you know, restaurant to 
use this device to accept credit cards. It's like a new idea. Then you have all these people, these merchant payment processor businesses that basically are large sales organizations that sell into merchants. And then that grows, it grows, it grows. It becomes kind of a whole industry and it gets extremely competitive and commoditized because no one's really offering much value over the others. And so they focus on things like support or, you know, business coaching or things outside of the actual transaction, but it's still largely like yellow pages. Like it's, it's kind of a pivot from the existing commoditized business. And then now you're even further pushing this down the pipe, which is you're making it more commoditized. You're like, you don't even have to do anything. You, you know, you as a payment processor, you just bolt onto us, accept the bid and the ask price. You're creating a marketplace for it. Now, I would imagine they all have relatively the same cost. You know, they're all at the end of the day, they're all just connecting banks to banks and using the credit card rail. So I would imagine this kind of gets, it converges on like, you know, bare minimum and then it, maybe it gets consolidated. Like what's the end game here? Do you think, does crypto come into play here? And like, I, I think crypto, does, I think crypto could come into play yeah. here as a, as a method of moving money. Right. So as you said, you know, some of these folks have volume that is more than others. Some of them have price advantages. Now, some of them have markets, right? So mm -hmm. some people work in Vietnam and other people don't work in Vietnam, right? Some people in the U.S., if I'm doing a U.S. ACH transaction or RTP transaction, you're right. I probably have 15 people who all have the same exact cost structure. And whoever is willing to come in at the lowest margin on their cost structure but still profitable is going to win that business. Yeah. But there are other areas of the world where there are differentiations, whether it's speed, whether it's accepting in currencies. So we accept in 30 currencies across the globe. Believe me, not every yeah. provider in our ecosystem can do that. That's so that. If I start being, yeah. And if I start being able to accept in Bitcoin and ETH, you know, Dogecoin and all these other things, again, I'm not taking the risk. I never hold the funds. I don't have those licenses. Who's you? I when you say you say I, you mean I pay quicker. So okay, got it. So I'm a literally an abstraction layer in the middle mm -hmm. that routes things mm -hmm. overall. I'm telling you, we talked about actually ironically, I'll go back to it. We talked about the strategy and the chief strategies officer's job of creating decision trees, right? I'm the decision tree in the middle here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get on it. either side I, totally are yeah. those are I, those outputs. I do believe, so to go back to a point, I've believed for many, many, many years that FX was something that was going to converge down to next to nothing over the course of time. I believe banks aren't going to be able to get away with charging their customers 3 to 5% every time they take in USD in Europe. I think TransferWise, which is now Wise, did a great job many years ago on the consumer front, right, of saying, let's get the rates down to 1%. You can do transactions at 75 basis points. I should be clear that our platform is a B2B platform or B to small B. So I count like, for instance, Uber paying an Uber driver, Amazon paying a marketplace holder, a, you know, Substack paying a creator. That is B2B in my consideration because the person on the other side may be a small B, but they're a B mm -hmm. nonetheless, right? I think that FX inherently, my hypothesis and my belief is FX over time was going to get condensed down. If I'm part of the story that helps get that condensed down over time, that's fine with me because I believe it was going to get there anyway, right? 
eventually in an open market, people are going to compete. If you're the only one with Vietnam, by the way, even on my system, you can get away with a two and a half percent FX charge to Vietnam if you're the only one who's doing it, right? If you look at a company like DLocal, who has created a very interesting business in South America at huge margins, right? Someone's going to come in and try to cut those margins down. I don't know who may, who the players may be, but it will happen. And so all I'm doing is pushing that competitive nature to drive the lowest possible cost yeah, yeah. for our clients who are the people making payments around the globe. And I think it would happen anyway, Mike. I think it's just a matter that we may be making it quicker. Yeah, no, I think kayak is a good example. And it's, it, it frankly feels like there'll be a couple of kayaks out there, but ultimately probably not more than two or three because you, you just need some, what would you call that? Like comparability, you know, kayak, like to keep kayak honest, you need a, like Google, right? Google has the same thing, yeah. similar service or who's the competitor of kayak? Like, I can't think of the name. I was going to say booking, but B- I'm booking. not sure they would consider themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Th- somewhere like that. Yeah. So that makes total sense. And then do you think crypto will just patch onto that or just add on to that as a payment option that effectively undercuts the market by being cheaper and faster? Uh, 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 just like a virtual card is a form factor for a physical card, right? Mm-hmm. Crypto becomes a form factor for another payment around the globe. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The problem with crypto today, why it's not going to undercut anything anytime soon, is these exchanges want to take huge bid-ask spreads, right? What do you mean? So until, meaning if all I'm doing is, if I can buy Bitcoin at 2,800 and sell it at 2,900, I'm making it, or 19,000, mm-hmm. 19,100, that's a much bigger spread than I can trade USD to Euro when I'm only paying 15 basis points of FX spread, Right. So why in the world would I choose to use Bitcoin as my method of of movement when the spread on that is larger than the FX transaction spread at 15 basis points? Now, to the common U.S. person who's paying 3% to a bank, it's really easy for Bitcoin to come in at a 1% FX spread, more or less, and beat a bank. But as you start talking about corporate payments, which we're doing, where people are paying 10, 15, 20, 25 basis points, Unless Bitcoin or the other cryptos begin to change their bid-ask spread for conversion, I don't see why anyone would use that other than people want to get paid into that currency. As you look at millennials, and this is a strong belief of us at PayQuicker in general, is we believe in beneficiary-directed payments. The beneficiary who's the payee should be able to choose how, when, where they want their money. Crypto is an addition that people want their money that way. But if it turns out crypto is a lot more expensive than regular currency or getting it on a card or getting it into their e-wallet at, you know, Paytm in India, as an example, right? There's not going to be a mad rush to crypto, right? And so I think crypto, and again, this isn't my expertise, but I think crypto needs to move to a point where the bid-ask spread is down to five or 10 basis points between it. And if they get to that point, with the general public and with businesses, 
I believe a lot of this transaction volume can move there. And we are very happy to add crypto exchanges. We use the MasterCard network for crypto today. So as you know, anyone with a MasterCard can buy or sell crypto on any wallet. We have a MasterCard that links into our platform that anyone can use. But as far as crypto, the crypto transactions, until the FX is competitive with the FX markets out there externally and by banks, I wouldn't, I'm not sure why anyone would want it. Well, do you see it? Tell me if you see it differently than, than how I'm about to lay it out. So I would see Amazon, for instance, is going to man, manage their books using US dollar, everything in their accounting system, USD. Say one of the vendors wants to receive Bitcoin. Now they're going to use a tool like yours to orchestrate the. Now it could happen one of two ways. There could be, there could be a company that Amazon interacts with that provides the actual exchange itself directly, or they can interact with an orchestration payments company who then has various liquidity providers that offer different exchange rates. Because the, 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 when you say the bid and ask price is 5% or some large amount, that's just reflective of the amount of liquidity in the market. If there's not a lot of liquidity, then the transaction costs are high. But when there's a ton of liquidity, people have you know millions and billions of Bitcoin and millions and billions of US dollars, then those transactions can happen much cheaper. So I would imagine you'd have, there could be an orchestration layer that, pay, that Amazon interacts with. And that orchestration layer, like you know, analogous to or could even be pay quicker, then says, okay, we're going to open up these various liquidity pools. So if you want to provide Bitcoin exactly. and, and you want to get paid for that, we're going to have a marketplace. And you could say, well, put in, you could have wallets and people could deposit Bitcoin and then you could set up those exchanges and then people could set their transaction costs. They get, there's like a floating bid ask price. Where it's like okay, it's the point two, and then and then the the dollars go from Amazon through you guys into, and then you pay out the the liquidity provider, and then the liquidity provider sends the Bitcoin to the end vendor. That that's right. That's exactly what would happen, right? So Amazon would pay, you know, the hundred dollars to the person. Our our lowest cost routing mechanism would take all the what I call FX brokers, but if you think about it, as crypto FX brokers, right? We take all the crypto FX brokers, take their rates for the $100. It would tell Mike, who's receiving the money, that we found someone who is, you know, $100 equals 0.0x of a Bitcoin. We would ask that person where they want their money, what coin, whether it's Coinbase or any of the other wallets. We would send the $100, or actually, since we don't touch the money, Amazon would send the $100 to whoever that you know, exchange provider is, right? And then that person would give the bank instructions for their crypto wallet and they would move it there. That's exactly mm. how our platform works today. It just doesn't do it with crypto. The interesting thing is this. I don't want you to pick Amazon, so I'm just going to say company XYZ. Sure. A lot of our clients today pay out in 30 different currencies. So if they, if they have a US office, they pay out in the US, but if they're taking transactions in Australia, they don't want to actually, as a corporate, convert their money from Australian dollars to USD, which then they need to go back and pay their folks in, a, in Australian dollars. So we take in Australian dollars and pay out Australian dollars, right? And so all of a sudden now, between adding crypto to the equation and adding the ability to take in through our partners 30, 40 currencies around the globe, you now have created a ubiquitous market, regardless what you're paying in on. And regardless what you're paying out on, and it's just the best company who provides that rate wins. And all I'm doing as an exchange owner 
is I'm charging a flat SaaS fee to my corporate clients who use it and passing through, for the most part, the wholesale rate. So essentially, we're a market maker in a way. We're, we're not a market maker in a way that we're going to share the different exchange rates. We're just going to take the parameters and tell you who wins mm. on the back. End. Right, right. No, I understand yeah. your your position feels very clear. You're more like the the router to the system. I'm I'm interested in in how crypto undercut, like when and how. What are the indicators in which crypto will all of a sudden like break the dam and just you know all the water flows through and it's like this is just a better option and then it's a mad race. Like when Visa Mastercard came out in the I think 80s or so. It was just, everyone realized like light bulbs just went on. It's like, this is just better. And there's a thousand merchant processors. That will, that will happen in crypto, I'm convinced. And what I wonder about is what will be the indicators? Is it, you know, one thing I think about is a slightly different dynamic. There is a liquidity provider for, you know, call them like a, they're not really a merchant processor, like liquidity provider is doing, is doing a different thing. You know, they're basically putting up a pool of Bitcoin and they're saying, through this pool, I'm willing to accept trades at this price. Whereas a merchant processor is saying, I have a relationship to a bank in this country, and that bank is going to charge me a fee. And so I have some margin that I'm going to add to that and quote you a price. So the cost to do business is different. Like one is a cost of capital in, in the form of Bitcoin. The other is a contract with a bank. So do you see, like, it, it, it is different. It's a bit what happened with buy now, pay later, right? So if you think about what buy now, pay later has done in the U.S. and globally is there's disintermediating the Visa MasterCard structure, mm -hmm. right? Because they have a different relationship. Right, right. And so if crypto becomes transactional on the pay inside, right? And now people are paying like to like, meaning you sold your your scarf on Etsy, on Etsy for one Bitcoin or one Ethereum or whatever it happens to be, and you get 80% of that, what you sold, all of a sudden, I'm now not doing multi-currency transactions. Now I'm just moving money just like it's a dollar overall, right? The struggle came in the example we were talking about before when everyone was funding in USD, as you shared with Amazon, and there needed to be a quote unquote FX transaction to move it to crypto. Once crypto becomes a more accepted inbound currency overall, and so companies actually are holding that crypto because they took it on the inbound side, then having crypto as an outbound rail through an exchange or any other place will disintermediate because it's the same thing as a US to US transaction. A USD to USD transaction costs cents, mm -hmm. right? It costs in the cents. And maybe, you know, companies will charge a couple bucks, but the fact is, Depending on the volume you're doing, you know, a JP Morgan Chase probably pays a tenth of a cent or half a cent to send an ACH transaction. But now, right? yeah, go ahead. So, so what I'm getting at is if I'm holding, that's because they're holding USD and paying USD. So if I'm a corporate who's holding a crypto and all I need to do is transfer that crypto to someone else, all of a sudden that rail doesn't have an FX on it. And I can send it over probably equal to the sense that I can move things on in the USD. And now I've created basically an equal comparison overall. The rails price has to drop, right? Mm. And, I, you know, I, I, again, this is where my maybe novice nature in crypto gets in. My understanding is like Ethereum rails are really expensive right now, right? So to move Ethereum 
if I want to pay you Ethereum, Mike, I'd get charged a decent toll. Until that toll disappears and becomes equal to a FedNow or an RTP cost or an ACH cost, it's going to be difficult to compete as a, unless, except for people who really want crypto. Once that toll cost goes down, once it becomes a ledger transaction like a stablecoin transaction is today, where it's all done on a ledger, at that point, it takes over because ledger transactions cost nothing. Yeah. And what? tell me if this is correct. The rough approximate cost to make a, make a consumer to business transaction, say if you were to go full cycle, like consumer to business, business to vendor. Uh, so, I mean, Amazon comes to mind because it's a simple, you know, business that everyone understands. But when I make that transaction, that's that's three percent on the inbound. Like, am, maybe Amazon can pay two percent or something. Amazon over. probably pays a little less, but a typical merchant will pay three percent in discount rate. Yeah, which is interchange. That's what the folks make on a transaction using a card. Yep, three percent. Yeah, and then on the outbound, something slightly less than that because there's less risk. Uh, on the outbound, it's slightly less. Yeah. So if if you know if they're sending an eight, if if the person who you know, you know, uh, Apple, they were selling an iPad on Amazon, and they send the money to Apple, they're doing it for you know, at Amazon's volume, they're probably doing it for you know a nickel. Yeah. So the right? inter the interesting thing at, there, at, at a small merchant, they may be paying a dollar for it. And right? the, the interesting thing is that on crypto, there's not the there's not this concept of like a transaction percentage fee. It's 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 really a mining fee to do a transaction. The the thing this is what's probably the opportunity that opens the gate a little bit is when I move when I say I want to send you bitcoin in order for us to make that change on the ledger that the mining mining businesses are effectively providing mining services for the network. They don't there's no difference whether I'm sending you a dollar or a hundred million dollars. It's like, it's the same cost to make thing to propagate that change. And that's where I think it's probably going to start to affect like larger companies who sell, you know, cars or grills or, you know, high ticket items. That transaction fee is, is significant, you know, compared to like a coffee shop, it's just not going to be as big of a transaction fee. So I think smaller ticket items will have crypto won't be as good initially. I mean, I, I, I would converge crypto at approximately, you know, zero. There'll always be some fee you have to pay the miners to propagate right. everything. But like Visa, MasterCard, all these banks, like there's so many people that live off of the transaction fees. And I think it'll start in there. I think crypto, taking their yeah, cut. they're taking their cut. And I think that I think it'll start to eat at the high ticket items first. So I'm thinking if I'm in your shoes or anyone's shoes doing this kind of business, I'm thinking it's probably because of that the because crypto and traditional banking rails have different costs to make those transactions or they have different prices really as to be more precise, then it's going to be higher ticket items get disrupted by crypto first would be my guess. I think it makes sense, right? Because where global payout providers came in more so was a bank is ready. A bank is really great for United Airlines to buy a Boeing plane, right? It's one fifty million dollar wire, and any bank in the U.S. can handle it. And the odds of an error aren't that high, right? The error rate, by the way, on wires in the U.S. is like one point five percent. Wow, so really? That high? Yeah, that it, seems high to me. It's huge. Yeah, that's it, it's a lot of a lot of people fat finger things. There are buildings in New Jersey of full of people 
who all they do is do error wire error processing. Wait, can I ask a quick question? If I send a, if I send a wire to a non-existent bank account, what happens? Where does that where does that go? It gets rejected, and then it gets researched, and then it 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 essentially goes back to the people who sent the wire, and then there's a major fee attached to it. But more so, sometimes what happens, and I'll talk about cross-border wires for a second, is people expect 5,000, but the conversion rate comes in and they get 4,992. And so when they get 4,992, their accounting department has no idea to reconcile that with the person they expected to send them 5,000 because there was a conversion rate or a fee or something attached to it. And so then it gets sent for 45 days of research sitting in somewhere before it finally gets rejected. And then that person looks like they never paid the money. And that other side is out the money for 45 days, right? Major problem overall in general payments. That's why a company like Plaid is so valuable, right? With their ability to look up the account numbers and all that before you send the money. Mm -hmm. And the, the point I was actually making is Now I have to pay an Uber driver and I want to pay an Uber driver after every ride. Or we have a client who sells goods and after every single sale, their salesperson gets a commission literally within an hour or two of making the sale. Banks were not built technology-wise to be doing 100 million payments in a short period of time, right? And so it's the small dollar payments that led to the innovation and the creation of a lot of these fintechs to solve this problem, both domestically and internationally. I think the fee structure of crypto, you're right, works on the big payments. But I got to be honest, the big payments are in a system that kind of works today already, Mm. right? Not many people are using a credit card to buy something for half a million dollars. Maybe it's like maybe the ideal is like a couple hundred. You know, not a, well, not an airplane. There's a, yeah. there's a sweet spot, yeah. right, of where it will be. And then, of course, how does the person, how does the merchant acquirer add crypto to the exchange and still make money? Because you need someone to accept that money in the middle, right? And so this is, you know, this is the whole, whole con- for P2P transactions, crypto is really easy, right? Like, hey, Mike, I owe you $50 mm-hmm. for dinner. It's like I Venmo you and said I just send you the money via a crypto, right? But to pay people out from a business perspective and utilize that crypto to buy things, that's where the gap is today. And, and, and my feeling is on the payout side, it's actually going to be a lot easier to bring crypto in. If someone wants crypto for their USD, we don't. I can do that tomorrow, right? Yeah. I'll find someone on the back end who will be in FX. It's the people paying in in crypto that's going to be the harder side. Because that means they need to accept it for their goods. And you can see while Tesla accepts it and the Dallas Mavericks accept it, you know how many years it took? PayPal is still searching on a daily basis to try to get people to accept PayPal as a way of payment into merchants. And they still aren't even close to where Visa, MasterCard, or others are. So who's out there advocating for crypto? Who's, who's the Visa or the MasterCard or the PayPal? who's advocating for crypto for all of these global merchants around the world to actually accept crypto as an inbound payment. Well, I think that to me, yeah. that's where the gap. I do, Those companies do exist. There's a few of them, a couple of that I've interviewed. And I think the other thing that could really put pressure 
on this transition from fiat, particularly USD to cryptocurrency, is inflation of the fiat currency. So as the as we assess the va- the cost to move money from business to vendor, if you just look at the transaction costs, maybe crypto is not even close yet. But I do think that if the fiat currency, you know, if US dollar were to have inflation, massive inflation, hyperinflation, then there's going to be pressure on both sides to get out of that because just holding it, moving it costs money. And and absolutely. We see this and we saw it at HyperWallet and Payoneer, among others. When people get paid USD into India or maybe not India, let's use a different country into, you know, Chile, right? A lot of people actually, a lot of the SMBs keep their money in USD rather than turn it into the Chilean currency because they feel it's a safer haven. Exactly. They keep their money in that area, right? And so if you get to a point where people, ironically, I'm not sure people believe that, well, you you know more crypto people than I do. I'm not sure people are at a point where they believe holding Bitcoin is more stable than holding USD. But if it gets to a point where people find that holding Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these other are more stable than USD, that's when this thing explodes. Yeah. Because all of a sudden now it becomes the safe haven. Yeah, you know, you, right? yeah, you know, today yeah. it's more speculative. So I, th- I could just a couple of reactions to that. One, I think that, that that's largely dependent on the job of the federal government of the United States. And when they start to do a poor job, inflation starts to go crazy in U.S. dollars. People internationally in particular start to feel that USD is not the place to hold. Then other options become much more viable, namely Bitcoin and crypto, although it could be other fiat currencies. The other thing is when when that when that does happen, which to me, it feels like an inevitability. I, I have no idea on the time frame. It could be anywhere from like, 10, 10 years, a hundred years, like, but there is some time frame. It feels yeah. just because people that have access to print to the money printer will hit the money printer. Like say the, the pandemic was 10 times worse. Oh, we needed to print uh, 50, 50 trillion, uh, 60 trillion. It's like, yeah, you, you do all this. And then people abroad are like, screw the SD. Right. But you'll know that we're in that situation when people price things per BTC. So now you think of like, what's the price of BTC? You say, oh, it's 19,000, right? So denominator USD. And once the denominator becomes BTC for prices, like how much is this water bottle? Oh, it's like 0.2 BTC. That, that, once people yep. start saying that, you're like, that's, that's my trigger. Absolutely. And, and you know, I'll go back to this. And, 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 and you, asked me strategic, you asked me questions at the beginning about chief strategy officer and what you're thinking. My job at PayQuicker, my job is wherever I wherever I am, I want to be there and have the platform ready for when that happens. I'm not in the business of predicting when that happens, right? And so what we built is a technology that the moment that people start calculating things in BTC, I already have five Bitcoin FX providers on the back end allowing it to go to wallets, et cetera. It leverages the exact same technology today for me to do it with Colombian pesos and U.S. dollars. Yeah. Right. I am completely indiscriminate on what's the hot currency at the time. What's the hot, you know, crypto at the time. Right. What I'm trying to do is facilitate the transactions in whatever anyone wants. Again, going back to beneficiary directed payments. People want their money on Venmo. They want their money on Alipay. They want their money in cash. They want their, you know, people can take cash out today. Right. There are some people who are still st- sticking USD cash under their mattresses, so to speak. 
It's not for me to say who and how they want it. It's for me to say, I'm going to make it available when I can. And if you ask me to tell you when people are going to start calling things in BTC, like you just talked about, I, I, I couldn't even fathom a guess. It's my job to make sure we're ready when that happens. And if it happens for it not to disrupt the way life is going on as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, and I leave it to people who have a lot more intelligence around crypto and, and that side of the business, like yourself to advise me and tell me when that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, TBD, Charles, are you a writing or tweeting anything personally that you want to throw out there? You know, I, I, I do do some, some blogs on, on through the website, through PayQuicker, and we're penning some thought pieces. I must admit, I'm probably more of a Twitter reader than I am tweeting things out. But yeah, no, I'm more of a consumer than I am probably a, a, a publisher. But, you know, I'll let you know if, if, if that changes, I'll, I'll send it through your, uh, your Twitter feed. And what people or books have influenced you the most, would you say, in or out yeah. of payments? I mean, uh, certainly no emphasis on payments. Yeah. There. Yeah. I try not to read payment books yeah. if I, if I can. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I really, the thesis behind Moneyball, mm. I'm sure you've probably heard that before from other folks, but the, the, I, I, when push comes to shove, when I started DE Shaw, it's a statistical arbitrage hedge fund that did 15% of the trades on the U.S. stock exchange in the day. I am purely, and Capital One, as you probably know, is a very, very data-centric, you know, test and learn company. And I think Moneyball actually shares that in a totally different realm of sports, which I absolutely love and follow all the time. But, you know, the ability to look at something analytically and get your use case out of something analytically, then to add a layer of practicality on it sort of tends to be huge to me and something I think I've used to, to learn and apply in, in the rest of my life. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Charles. This is so much. This is a really fun, dynamic conversation. I appreciate your time and uh, hope you guys keep crushing it. I absolutely appreciate the time and uh, look forward to... Uh, chatting again and learning, seeing what happens in crypto. I'd love to see if your uh, theories, theories pan out. Yeah, let's see. I mean, see ya. Thanks. Sweet. We did it. That was fun. Good. I know. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just one 
$1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun, and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.